So do you think this was the first unwatchable Oscars? Oh, man, this is the most watchable (laughs) one in years. It was until that moment. I'm so pissed, though, because I think the first year that I stopped really tuning into the Oscars, just because they always bum me out, you know, they just like love terrible movies and the show is so poorly run. They're always like cutting off, you know, Martin Scorsese's lifetime achievement speech. So let's we have a montage about typewriters in film. Yeah. (laughs) Or to listen to like five like awful best song nominees that nobody likes. So I finally sit it out and that's the year that they give the wrong best picture award out. Then I I tune in again and then fucking Green Book wins best picture. Then I sit it out and then Parasite wins a bunch of awards. And so then I'm watching some unwatchable movie this year instead and then start seeing these clips on Twitter. I love that it was G.I. Jane, you know. What a terrible joke, like, aside from whether you think it was appropriate or not. <laughs> it's already like a stupid-ass joke. What just an absolute travesty of comedy across the board. Oh, yeah. It really felt like he just came up with that, like, as he was walking out. It's like a throwaway joke. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere between the shot of Will Smith laughing at it and, like, five seconds later, he's on stage throttling him. Just what happened in between. Isn't it weird, though? It's kind of the same thing that happened to Larry Clark. He punched out some industry guy, and it, like, might have ruined his career. But Will Smith was given an Oscar, like, 12 minutes later. (laughs) Uh, People who are most likely pedos, you know, just they just don't get Oscars. So unfair. (laughs) I can think of some some exceptions to that. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, though, I think that that guy insulted one of Larry Clark's, like, drug-addled 12-year-old friends. <laughs> I gave him the drugs. I like him like that. I like him addled. You take Telly's name out of your fucking mouth! Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the film podcast where we venture into the wilds of the most disturbing, punishing, or simply hardest to watch films so that you don't have to. I am Mark Dottavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today we're discussing two films about the state of youth in America by the controversial filmmaker Larry Clark. Those movies are 1995's Kids and 2002's Ken Park. Let's do this. Man, I thought this was the podcast where we talk about nice movies. <laughs> I chose the yeah. wrong one. I went through the wrong door. How did I get here? Oh, man. Well, we typically watch these movies, you know, together in pairs like this. So I got to say, when it comes to Larry Clark movies, he really takes you into a very particular world. And I feel like I've just spent days there. And that's just <laughs> over like two 90-minute movies. Uh, yeah, this was rough, man. Yeah, it's incredibly immersive. It's claustrophobic. Claustrophobe? I feel like I never say that word right. Claustrophobic? 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 Chuck Klosterman. We'll fix that in post. Yeah, we will. Um, but yeah, that's that's the, that's always been the main thing about his stuff. Like regardless of the content, same with Harmony Kareen too. A lot of these sort of extreme filmmakers from that time, like regardless of what's happening beyond it, there's like an unspeakable mood. Like even when it's not showing you intense like images of t 
teenagers doing like fucked up shit or crimes and stuff like that. There's just like this malaise or this energy in these movies that are just so like, I don't know. You can only get it there. It feels like if you want it. Yeah. Cause these are all about like creating worlds, right? Especially with kids. I think that's kind of Larry Clark's whole thing. I think we should talk about him for a little bit too, in general. He came up as a photographer, a rather controversial one, who released this kind of famous book of photography in 1971 called Tulsa, uh, about Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he grew up. And it's basically a bunch of shots of, you know, really young people presented like they are in almost all of his movies. Um, there, it, I believe it's in black and white. There's a lot of drug use and illicit activities and sexually explicit content. So he was already pushing these buttons back like in the 70s, which means that when Kids came out, which was his very first movie um, that he had ever shot, I mean, he was in his early 50s by then. And uh, I guess still wanted to be, you know, the voice, the documentarian of these kids out on the fringe. Yeah, I think his uh, backstory is very essential for us going forward with the discussion because really it what constantly is going through your head is like who is this guy behind this camera with these kids like that is like where a lot of the tension for a viewer comes from which this time around I did more research on him it is it's complicated like at the end of the day I don't think anyone needs to be filming children in these ways necessarily but uh, he, there he was like with Tulsa, he was a like teenage drug addict. Right. Uh, he was like in their world, and he happened to start filming them and taking pictures and things like that. Because that was that's always the thing. If you're like like my assumption would be that this is some sort of like artistic provocateur, and he's not necessarily. From what I saw, it does seem like he came from a little bit of privilege. He was able to go to art school eventually and things like that for photography. So he is coming at it from not a totally like guerrilla filmmaker kind of way. He is learned in film lore in some ways, it seems. But he is, on the flip side, very authentic and was a drug addict and relapsed throughout his life. Uh, it sounds like what a lot of it was with the like him getting into the filming of kids was him initially just like trying to figure out what the hell is going on with kids now. Yeah. I have to wonder because you know what this like 50 year old guy was who met all of these actors and collaborators just out in, you know, skate parks. So I imagine maybe he was out like photographing them or something, but it seems to be like a milieu he likes to spend time in. He's very, I mean, so preoccupied with that. I don't think he's ever made a movie that doesn't somehow tap into that. Uh, even when he stretches. He's obsessed, yeah. Clearly obsessed. So this is very much about his like preoccupations as a filmmaker. It's always right there on his sleeve. And for better or for worse, I guess that makes him a really recognizable like auteur, you could say. Yes. Uh, which, you know, isn't inherently a good thing. Um, and we're definitely going to get into the kinds of things he's been accused of and the, you know, places that his movies go that I don't think is totally unfounded. But I do get the sense that this is genuinely what he is obsessed with. And he's getting something out of doing all this. Now, him crossing paths with someone like Harmony Kareen is interesting because 
he was coming from that from a pretty different end age-wise because I think he, I mean, he was at least in his like early, very early 20s when he wrote this script. 19, I guess. 19, okay. Yeah. And uh, you're more familiar with Harmony Korine than I am. I think the Spring Breakers is probably the only one that I've seen that he's actually directed otherwise. Oh, so you've never even seen Gummo. No, I have not. That's wild. Well, yeah, I, and I would love to do an episode on him. I don't think he's nearly as unwatchable as uh, Larry Clark is, but um, yeah, Harmony Kareen is like a like very experimental, scatterbrained. Like sometimes to the point of like absolute silliness, and the floor kind of drops out, and you don't know if like does any of this like is this guy just like running around with a camera kind of thing. Ranges from that to like absolutely beautiful collages of images and stories. Again, with a bent, I guess, rather nihilistic bent similar to Larry Clark, although that I th- I think Harmony developed more of a hopeful, more like looking into the beauty of life too, um, where Larry seems very, I mean, it's definitely c- celebratory, but Larry seems very preoccupied with the darkness. Yeah, so I do kind of wonder where Harmony Kareen's contributions start and where Larry Clark's end or vice versa. I think he was going to school for writing at the time in NYU or something to, like in in New York. And he was just like a skateboarder, one of the many skateboarders in, ki- in kids that is documented here. And he just met him, uh, met Larry Clark, who was, I think, just doing research for this project that he had the possibility of making a movie. And he met Harmony Kareen and in a lot of ways, like makes it elevated from some of his other work that it's written by a teenager, which I wondered about that, too. How much? Yeah. Like where? Harmony starts and ends with this movie because obviously a lot of it has some improvisational flair. A lot of it is obviously like who's really calling the shots here. The guy who is, you know, in his fifties and is providing the money for all of this or whatever, or is like, yeah, the face of the money for all this. But I looked up the script for kids because I've always wanted to know that a lot of it is pretty word for word when there's an actual conversation going on. It's pretty much Harmony's script, it seems. Yeah, I know he's maintained that over the years. Like he's stated that most of the movie is exactly how he wrote it, even though it doesn't seem like it. And uh, I, I do have to wonder, if, you know, when he met Larry Clark, is that something that Clark just a line he he just had like for the cops of why he was always hanging around these teenagers? Like, oh, man, I'm doing research. Right. <laughs> this is all, uh, you know, this is for film. And then he's like, all right, I guess I better make a movie now. Yo, oh, shit. Now I got to make a movie. <laughs> but all joking aside, he did basically commission him to write his first movie and he delivered this screenplay. And I, the prompt was basically just a day in the life of these kids in, is it Manhattan? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if our, if our producer could fact check that. We just know that it's set in New York, and I think it implies some kind of outer borough, like Brooklyn vibe or something, but that's all we know, I think. Yeah, it's basically 24 hours of just following these kids around. We have two kind of main friends, with the leader being Telly and his friend uh, Casper, and... I wouldn't say this is plotless because, you know, we do meet Telly as basically this monster who is going around uh, obsessed with deflowering virgins, very, very young teenage uh, girls. Right. And he's like 14 or 15. And yeah, he's like hell bent on like 
having sex with younger girls than him. Yes, and we open with a very disturbing scene with him with a very young girl, very young-looking girl at least, um, just giving her all the usual lines about, you know, how you don't got to worry about getting pregnant with me. All of these lines that immediately you could see, you know, parents freaking out, like watching this movie, like their absolute worst nightmare running around out there. Oh, I was un- I was unhappy this time around. This is one of those movies that I think a lot of teenagers watch. I did. But like watching it as an adult now is just, it gets difficult. And one of the most unwatchable scenes for me is this opening. Mm-hmm. The flip side is that it's important for adults to remember that this is real. These are... These are real stories that happen. Like, kids have sex. It's how it is. Like, we don't talk about it as a society, but, like, children have sex. And this is one of the few movies that actually addresses that. It does. It's just always going to have this element, and it does throughout the movie, where you go in and out where of, you go, you feel comfortable, and then you're uncomfortable again, because you're constantly remembering that this isn't a documentary. There are adults present that are allowing this to happen, and that's always going to be a weird transaction occurring. There's nothing wrong with kids doing what they do naturally, but the tension is always going to be because there's this 50-year-old guy here, and there's money on the line, and there's all kinds of like direction being given from all angles and stuff, and it's that that's really what the tension is for an adult viewer, I think, here. Yeah, and I really like you bringing up that point, too, about watching this at different points in your life. Because I actually go further back with this movie than any other one that we've talked about so far. I have a like very vivid memories of spending a lot of time in video stores as a kid. And this is back when it was still like VHS tapes in there. And there was always one section that was like the NC-17 or unrated section that, you know, they had some sort of different color sticker on the box. And I was always just kind of peering over there. And like, is it okay if I like walk over here? And uh, my parents didn't pay, you know, weren't that concerned about it. So I, I did start to like go over there and slowly like pick things off the shelf. And kids was a big one. I, I remember the cover of the VHS tape and everything and somehow like making it past the counter. I think I probably just gave it to my mom or dad and they they just threw it in with the other movies and rented it. And at the time, I mean, I was probably like junior high age, maybe. I don't even think I was in high school yet. And watching this movie like alone in my room, it, it seemed like the most dangerous and raw and just scary thing that I had ever seen. And not just on the filmmaking level, because it is shot in this this kind of cinema verite documentary style look. And that is a big part of its effect. But just actually watching, you know, all these kids who are a little bit older than me and they're just, they have their own little world. They go, they do whatever they want. They're all having sex and indulging in every kind of hedonism that they could. And I was just wondering like, wow, like, is this really what it's like when you get to that age? Is this what I have to look forward to? Or, oh my God, I, I'm not having sex all the time. Like these kids are, it seemed like such dark, heavy shit at the time. And coming back to it now, it's kind of like going back to your grade school, like when you're older and you're like, man, I didn't realize that the like the urinals were so close to the ground and the <laughs> the like, you know, drinking fountains were so low. <laughs> and, and now I'm it's like I'm seeing everything kind of for the first time now as it really is, which is seeing the ways that the filmmaker is, is tipping the scales and kind of sensationalizing things. Because, I mean, once this movie gets going after that first scene, I mean, that's bad enough. But then just in quick succession, it's Telly meeting up with his friend, bragging about how this girl just entered puberty. 
One of them stops and pees on a wall. They're shoplifting. They're stealing money. They're doing whippets in a room with, uh, you know, kids who look like they're like 12 years old. And it's just one thing after another. And I'm really interested in how just alarmist this movie actually is. Because on, on one hand, we have everything being made to look almost appealing. Yes. In the sense that the way that it lingers on everything. And we'll certainly talk about that. But on the other hand, it seems like this is almost like a movie to horrify parents. Which I think is kind of Larry's fault. Is the I think the alarmist stuff comes from Larry. I think so too. Anytime it feels forced, it feels like that's when it's Larry stepping in and saying, you know what's going on right now, Harmony? AIDS. You know, like everybody is worried about AIDS. Like, I think that was like a specific thing that he communicated to Harmony that that needs to be in the script, which... Quite often, I think the movie might be better without so much emphasis on having to like constantly remind and like make plot points out of like current events like that. It's very scared straight. Yeah, like it is trying to just be like this cautionary video that kids would watch in health class like half the time. Like they would be like, this could happen to you. Yeah, and when I say that this, you know, does have a plot. That basically comes early on when we do meet some female characters, the major one who's played by Chloe Sevigny, and I think her first film? That is correct. Okay. Very first film. Yeah, and she's someone who has only had sex with our main character, Telly. Mm-hmm. And she goes with her friend, uh, also played by a very young Rosario Dawson. So two f- very familiar faces there. And another debut. Yeah, rumor has it that she says that she lost her virginity to Jay-Z. So I like to think that in these scenes where they're all like all the girls are like in a circle talking about like having sex for the first time and stuff. She's talking about Jay-Z. I'm just so glad you said Jay-Z and not Larry Clark. Because <laughs> I was like, please. <laughs> I oh do my not. God, oh, God. Please, no. I, yeah, I don't even want to think that he was having sex with all these people. I mean, I don't know. We can't really say. It's impossible to say if like Larry's a pedo. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to. I definitely don't want to just flippantly accuse him of something like that no it basically just reminds me of how that baby boomer generation kind of works as far as men are concerned like the rock and roll generation was like sweet 16 you know whether she's 35 and she's got great tits or 14 and she's got great tits like these these assholes from that generation like kind of didn't discriminate as uh, as much as we do. I thought it was interesting that he, when he was a kid, his mother was a traveling baby photographer. Whoa. And he worked on the family <laughs> business uh, when he was as young as 13. So when he's an adolescent, he's traveling the country taking pictures of babies. So he at least has the groundwork is there for him to just sort of be interested in like going to different places and getting these sort of intimate portraits of young people. And once you threw in his whole experience in Vietnam and his drug use, this is probably just maybe the generous reading is that this is the natural kind of like artistic place that was always going to take him. <laughs> that is such a good point. I, that's yes. It's in his blood, baby photographer's son. <laughs> and that's, what's interesting to think about seeing this movie for the first time back in 1995 when it's his very first film. And it's still kind of an open question. Like, is this guy actually like a promising, you know, filmmaker who is capable of some really powerful stuff, but is definitely flawed and had some stumbles in this first movie? Or is he this just like skeevy 
guy who leers. I don't. I think maybe history has probably played out the second scenario. I think it's all true. Yeah, he's got like a lot to say. He's an artist, but he's also kind of a gross man. Yeah, who finds a lot of these thirteen-year-old girls attractive, and uh, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't necessarily discriminate as far as gender goes. I mean, every every uh, guy in both of these movies we're going to talk about is you know young and smooth and good-looking, and lots of you know lingering on their their flat navels and you know all those kinds of things. But before we get too far ahead, just to finish off the kind of plot thing here, is that Chloe Sevigny's character discovers that she has HIV and obviously got it from Telly since that's the only person that she's ever had sex with. And that kind of starts this race against the clock where she's trying to like find him and we know that he's about to have sex with another virgin and continue passing on HIV. And I think that's one of the queasier things about this movie because it is a being used as a plot device. It would not surprise me if that was definitely his idea and was like, Harmony, I need you to write this thing in. And that just, that totally amps up the whole kind of, you know, scaremongering aspect of this. And you know, it's not going to, it's not going anywhere good. And the, especially with the way that this ends too, is like, oh, another little twist of the knife stinger at the end involving a rape and somebody unknowingly getting HIV from the person that they're raping. The other most unwatchable scene in the movie. Yes, and the film is called Kids, right? So he's he it, he is making like some kind of sweeping statement that I think is meant to be shocking and sensationalistic. If I do want to say something positive about this, I think that any emotional kind of pull that this movie has does come from Chloe Sevigny. And maybe it's just her performance because she is such a terrific actor. Like I love her in so many movies. And you can't help but have your heart like kind of pulled out in those scenes where she first finds out that she's positive and is trying to call home and, you know, she's wandering around. So on on one hand, I don't like how it's being used as a plot device, but it is anything with her character, I think are the best parts of this movie. Yeah. Which she's interesting. She was like sort of becoming this like nineties it girl at this time. She had never been in a movie yet, but she had been in like, Sonic Youth videos and like on the cover of like various alternative magazines and alternative album covers and stuff. And I think she got she replaced an actress like just before filming to take this role because Harmony knew her like they they were friends. So Harmony wanted her to have the part, you know, classic uh, director actor relationship. They wound up having a romantic relationship later on harmony corinne and not not larry clark to be clear oh good much better with him than with larry (laughs) and harmony actually appears in this movie he's the kid who gives her like some kind of a party drug when she's in that club the little curly haired kid yeah he's like real spazzy little drug dealer yeah (laughs) it is interesting that they are also I i did some research on some of the other actors that are in this well actors I use in quotes really because they're they've never really acted before they really are just playing who they are some of them have their own names they still like Harold Harold was a famous uh well rising star in skateboarding same with Casper's character he was a part of like the Zoo York crew skaters and stuff like that but Harmony and Chloe came from rich backgrounds and stuff, which is kind of interesting. Like they are sort of the big players in this, but the the real kids who are 
providing the backdrop or a lot of like the heavy lifting where we're real like kids who like I think Casper's character was like semi homeless. Same with Harold. Yeah. And at the time, you wouldn't have known who was going to go on to be a famous actor like Chloe or Rosario and who was just a non-pro there. And I think maybe towing the line would be Leo Fitzpatrick, who plays Telly, because I have seen him pop up in a few random things since this. Yeah, he's in The Wire. That's right. And uh, in Bully, I think he plays somebody, um, which is another Larry Clark film. And it is. it was kind of weird watching it now and seeing him a little bit more as like an actor and not just this actual person. Because when I first saw this, I definitely thought just he seemed so authentic. And he still does. He's one of the better actors for sure. Yeah, and he does make, you know, even though this character is kind of this boogeyman that is so amoral and the worst like embodiment of every parent's nightmare, but he does make him kind of banal in a way that's, it's very memorably like repellent. I mean, this is a real piece of shit. Uh, and I viscerally was uh, really responded to that. And I think he, he deserves some credit. This is a memorable character, at least. It, it, yeah, he he's only 15. He doesn't know shit about sex, really. But he knows he knows more about sex and can manipulate like 12-year-old girls who haven't had sex before. And he's clearly weaponizing that which is interesting, like structurally, um, is are these like bookend scenes where he has sex with the first girl in the first scene and the girl that he's been trying to have sex with the whole movie, he does have sex in the final scene. And his speech is basically word for word, his like pickup speech of just like, you know, I care about you, you know, it's like the most typical, like sad puppy dog eyed boy speech to a girl who's like apprehensive about something and it unfortunately works in both cases. Yeah. And those bookending scenes also are the only time that we get this little voiceover from him that I found kind of odd, which is basically just him saying how much he loves pussy as he puts it. And that it's like his only interest. Like this is the only thing I'm, I'm good at or something. And I don't, I found that voiceover to be kind of awkward because it was so isolated, especially the, the last one it is really seemed kind of stilted and not like important to where the film was going at that point uh yeah i'm not sure if that's that worked i mean to the extent that anything works here i mean yeah it does end with ultimately chloe savaney like getting there and seeing that it's too late and tully has had sex with another virgin probably giving her hiv and then there is like one final scene which like can't help but warn an audience member about that it is like Chloe after being like taking this crazy drug from Harmony at the club like passes out and then Casper has sex with her and probably gets HIV right um we don't know but that's basically the end of it which the final word is Casper looking at the camera and being like what the fuck happened and then it's over yeah, that was another thing that seemed to be reaching for, all right, let's make, let's kind of have a point here. Like, man, what is going on today? Right, yes. You know, what happened? Anytime it starts to feel like it's actually about kids in a, in a more, like, wide-ranging, complicated way, it always has to be brought back to, like, Larry being like, and now talk about sex. Don't forget that this is about kids having sex. Like, and now what do you guys think about sex? Start talking about that. And it just feel, I can just feel like I can hear him in the room and it, and it derails the feeling for me. Yeah, he overloads us too much. 
it's just one like depraved thing after another. And it is kind of funny that people were, you know, accusing this of being like pornography when it came out, when really it's not that sexually explicit. There's not a lot of nudity or anything that I remember. It's not incredibly graphic uh, like some of his later films would be. Yeah, it's not as graphic. I would say the bookending sex scenes are like maybe irresponsibly long, especially the last one. Like there's no reason that we have to like sit there and it's like a single shot of just like, okay, he is humping her passed out body. He's still doing it. Still doing it. Don't know why I'm still watching this. Like, which I didn't. I just kept on skipping ahead. Yeah. And even when it's not a sex scene, I mean, this is like, if there's any Larry Clark trademark, it'll be where he's filming a scene where people are just having a conversation or something, you know, important to the plot is going on. And he'll literally just drift the camera downwards, like to their crotch. Yes. And you can always see exactly where his eye is going. And so many times it isn't serving the scene and it's clearly like he just wants to get this on camera, which is like, I mean, dude, can't you just like, you know, look for yourself and just, you know, get your jollies, but just keep filming the scene. But he keeps like thrusting us into that. And it is very awkward. Yeah, maybe I'm being too generous, but I do see it a lot of that. If like, if like, if I go out on a generous limb, sort of like I see a lot of that as just like, him being inexperienced as a filmmaker in general, not having a greater sense of the narrative and what you've shot and what you haven't shot and feeling like you just constantly like, well, am I, am I hammering home the theme yet? Like, I don't even know. I better get more of the theme. It could have been better in the editing room too, in that regard. It just seems like he never misses an opportunity to show us something that is, you know, we're not supposed to see or that's shocking. And that, from what I know about his other films, has only continued on the more and more movies that he's made, too. So it's almost more of a signature now. I do have to touch on, though, like, I don't hate this movie because of the filmmaking, really. Like, I I, I really do. I get ensnared by the momentum and the way the film looks. Like, I don't know a lot about film in general, like what they were shooting on, but it, it feels crisp. It feels like they must have been shooting on film, you know, in a, in a way that I don't see in a lot of movies. The colors are just really something. When it's really good, it's really something to watch, like when they're in like Central Park. And it does feel organic. Like a lot of this is just like crowds of kids that are doing what they do. And you feel pretty immersed. And that's what's like the best at its best. That's like what's really great about this, that makes it even more frustrating when like he fails right i agree yeah it feels like you're in 1990s new york like so much it feels like you are transported to 1990s new york in such a big way yeah and even if he is you know exaggerating or only focusing on you know the ugliest parts of it and we are pretty hard on him or we have been so far you know as a filmmaker for his failings but i do think that he has a lot of talent and this is a very well shot visual eye yeah yes he is a photographer and he does specialize in this kind of gritty close to earth kind of style and that really does come across here i think the whole power of the movie comes from that you know whatever power it has and you know i i wish that there was more almost of just that kind of urban flavor where he's he's not just 
hammering home the same point and things that are, you know, ugly or shocking. But, you know, we get like when Telly and Casper go down into the subway and there's a guy playing accordion and this little kid doing like a jig around him for money. And the camera just kind of lingers there. They go on to the subway and there's this guy with no legs on a skateboard singing a song and collecting money. And that that stuff really helped kind of sweep me away more. And I wish that there was there was more of that, which, you know, I guess him putting in the whole HIV plot line detracts from that because it does become about a narrative in a sense. Mm-hmm. When I don't think narrative is really his skill in any case. No, the real thing you walk away from other than the just sheer horror of a lot of it is the power of like being immersed in the 1990s aesthetics and things like that, which is exciting. And they go to the club and there's like skateboarding in the club and it's like a rave and it just seems like everything you, you know, you at least thought it might've been back then. Right. Yeah. The, um, the, the little dashes of New York flavor are, are a really nice touch, like set, to this backdrop of this like sweltering summer where they're they're just covered in sweat the whole time. Maybe this movie could have been called Do the Wrong Thing. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Because <laughs> they do. That's a good point. It's pretty good. You know, I think some of the stronger just scenes are more towards the beginning. You know, there is one kind of purposeful sequence where we have all of the guys together in a this, this little seedy apartment talking about, you know, sex and what they like and what the girls like. And it's intercutting that with the girls all having their own little rap session. Which is just fun. Yeah. Sometimes they're like directly contradicting what the guys are saying. Like, oh, yeah, man, girls love to give blowjobs. And then we cut right over there and they're like, oh, my God, I hate it. And that's where we get a lot of Chloe and Rosario Dawson just kind of having nice chemistry. And I think it's really a shame that Rosario Dawson just disappears from the movie after a certain point because them together, you know, I really liked. And even Chloe gets sidelined for the whole second half. She just kind of wanders around trying to find Telly. And I think that really just shows where the movie's interest really lies is kind of just in those long, aimless partying sequences and it kind of gets bogged down in that stuff as you know as opposed to anything it could have had with these really fine actors and it should be noted too there in some of these party scenes like there are these prepubescent boys hanging around like shirtless and smoking pot it spends a lot of time with them which really seems like rubbing our faces in the shock tactics yes They don't seem like this is anything new to them. These kids are like doing French inhales with joints and stuff at 10 years old in a lot of this. And they're just like very clearly like for real stoned too. That's the thing that's like wild about this. That's a whole other subject of like, I think it was very laissez-faire atmosphere. Like kids were doing real deal drugs like on set. And I don't think there was any sort of like, there was nobody stopping them. If anything, I think Larry was probably like, yeah, like I'm smoking weed too. We're all smoking weed, smoke more weed, 10 year old boy. Like just because he does come from that world, it seems, I guess, but it's still like rather (laughs) kind of inexcusable, you know? Yeah. And it's, I think it's worth noting that. So the actor, Justin Pierce, who plays uh, Casper in this, did die by suicide a few years later, very young. And even in like a movie like Bully that has more professional actors in it, 
He was still like he was working with Brad Renfro, who eventually died of a drug overdose, and Nick Stahl, whose whole career was derailed because he became he was a drug addict. And so there's, there's this weird kind of blurring where he is, you know, he's working with real actors. He's also working with non-professionals. And I do have to wonder how responsible he's being. Maybe these are kids you know, their lives were going to be taking this path regardless. But it does add this kind of icky undercurrent to it that we may be seeing like actually troubled people and that his interest mainly lies in titillating us with it. It's interesting too how this eventually ended up coming out because it was released with an NC-17 rating, which in the 90s was a big deal because movie theaters wouldn't play the movie then. And it actually was a like a, a company, I think, I don't know, Harvey Weinstein or somebody bought it and they technically were using Disney, like the Disney company um, to distribute it um, and and put money towards it. And Disney was not okay with that. And so they made this like one-off production company just so that they could release this movie and not have it be under the like Disney banner. <laughs> yeah, it was Miramax. Oh, really? Miramax was owned wow. by Disney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like, listen, Harvey Weinstein, you like children. Disney, we like children. Let's get together. Jesus. Yeah, I can only imagine Larry Clark and Harvey Weinstein hanging out together. What fucking charming pair that must have been. And the evil Disney overlords. But it is interesting to see like a production credit at the beginning for Gus Van Zandt because he's made movies that kind of go in this Around the same milieu, yes. Um, I'm thinking of like Paranoid Park and Elephant. Yeah, my own private Idaho. Oh yeah, yeah. And he's kind of like the I don't know. He's like the you know the real artistic like version maybe of of Larry Clark, like his good side, <laughs> the good version of him. Yes, because he also yeah. That's a very good point because his he has a bunch of teenager movies like Elephant in yeah. particular that is. Like, non-professional actors, they have their same names, very similar to this, that he's, like, really, like, just filming them being them and stuff. But it never feels the way this one feels, because it never really gets, it never gets to, like, a sexual angle, and that's the thing. Yeah, and so, you know, I know back in the day, when Larry Clark was first just coming onto the scene, he was probably in circles like that. He's probably a little bit of a persona non grata at this point. The next movie we're going to talk about never even got distributed in the United States. Uh, but before we switch over to that, I guess, um, it sounds like you do find some something worthwhile in this movie. And I mean, I personally did, I don't know, it, it did impact me while I was watching it. It was a very uncomfortable experience. I had this, this feeling of doom in the pit of my stomach the whole time. And I... I think ultimately it's overcome by all of the the bad stuff that we've been talking about. But there is the talent in there is from him visually and from some of these actors who are kind of transcending just how schematic everything is as far as teaching lessons and showing how awful the state of youth is. So just the fact that we have Chloe Sevigny in here, that there's this main character I'm never going to forget for better or for worse. Uh, I'm kind of midway through, but I, I guess I wouldn't say I would unwatch it, though. What about you? 
I don't know, similar to a sallow, which we, we just did. We just recorded that episode, which is like, there's definitely stuff in here that I just don't want to see. I skipped through. I will admit that I skipped through some of these scenes. I just can't handle. And I would definitely like unwatch certain segments of this. But it is, for better or worse, is like such a big piece of a lot of what I enjoy it's interesting. It's an interesting phenomena. The idea of that this still, I think, is a movie that teenagers watch. It's an interesting sort of like weird film initiation thing for kids. I think that's kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I teeter on the edge because I really love the filmmaking itself. As a person who makes movies myself and loves loves video and things, it just looks amazing and it does transport you to another time in a big way i just wish i didn't have to pay for it basically with (laughs) my fucking sanity you're right if we could just unwatch certain scenes that would really help because that opening scene is disgusting the ending scene is disgusting yes and it it, it bore it toes that line of you know, a movie can depict anything that it wants to, but there is there is a sense of the people doing this are just too young and the ultimate purpose is not meaningful enough. It's too glib to be worth all of that. Yeah. Irresponsible adults, which is a good segue into our next movie. Thank you. Yeah, I think Ken Park, if this one was kids, they could have called they could have called Ken Park parents. <laughs> Which I think that is like sort of the intention. I, I've heard Larry Clark in interviews talk about that Ken Park is a sequel, basically answering in kids, where are the adults? Here are the adults, apparently. Yeah, and that's funny because it's almost like every movie he's made since has in some way been like a spiritual successor to kids. He's never completely left that territory. No. No matter what it is. But yeah, 2001... I read he shot Bully, Ken Park, and Teenage Caveman, which (laughs) is this really weird, like, low-budget, post-apocalyptic horror movie that has, it shares some of the same actors as Ken Park. And he shot all three movies in, like, nine months. Uh, And so, I mean, he was just, like, elbow deep in barely legal flesh for that (laughs) nine-month period. And uh, I think that, I don't know, I feel like, Bully, which came out, I think, before Ken Park, might have been his kind of last gasp as a respectable filmmaker. Like I said, it had real actors in it, like Brad Renfro and Nick Stahl. And it dealt with like a real life story of these kids who planned this murder of this kid who was bullying them. I Of his movies that I've seen by him, I think I would consider his best because it actually taps into something that's a little more meaningful and there's some really disturbing stuff in that that I think actually is earned. I totally, um, I think we're both on the same page there. That is the climax of Larry Clark's filmography for me. I think Bully, it, well, yeah, that's as good as it gets for Larry Clark because it answers a lot of my problems with kids and Ken Park, I think, that it has something to say. It seems like he's actually honed his style and everything. Yeah, and it's not at all free of his usual stuff. They're still, still just completely, yeah, voyeuristic, like, crotch shots while people are just, you know, talking on the phone or something. All that stuff is still there. 
And even in Teenage Caveman, which I d- <laughs> have not seen in a long time, but I did watch that. I've never seen that. Years and years ago. Probably not that long after I saw Kids. I don't even know if I realized it was Larry Clark. But it, yeah, it has some of the same cast members from Ken Park. And even though it's this post-apocalyptic horror movie and there's something about mutants and a tribes and a genetic superior race or something still just ends up with lots of scenes of these kids like in hot tubs having sex with each other. Of course. Which brings us to Ken Park. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the first thing that would probably stick out to people is how differently this is shot, which I think applies to Bully as well. So I think this is maybe part of a, a run of movies that are a lot more polished and don't have that same, you know, handheld fly on the wall kind of thing where he gets a little more stylistic. Again, his, he, he, the best thing about him for me is the visual. It's the best and worst thing. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes you're seeing things you just do not want to see ever. But also the cinematography and photography going on is just really interesting. Like Ken Park has this really sepia tone kind of piss yellow look. Like it's always afternoon. I think that's my favorite part similar to kids that like my favorite part of it is the way it looks and the the world uh, like consistent world that it's in because of it everything feels like it's this california afternoon golden light kind of thing which i like that about that about it this movie and it's one of the few things that i like about this movie spoiler <laughs> <laughs> yeah it just looks a lot more like a movie but i think that he he tries to make up for losing that that gut punch documentary style by really piling on first of all the like violence and blood and this is much more sexually explicit than anything in kids this is full of unsimulated sex yeah even though it's less about sex in a way it has more explicit sexual imagery yes exactly but we are still at the point in his career where there's familiar faces like in the cast i think that he pretty much stopped working with professional actors sometime soon after this movie. But we do have some people in this. James Ransone, I think that's how you say his name, who plays uh, Tate in this, the disturbed kid. And we'll we'll talk about that. But he, I don't know if anyone's seen The Wire. He's like the, one of the stars of the second season as Ziggy. And I just saw him in It Chapter 2. He plays the adult version of uh, one of the kids. Yeah, I could tell he has some pe- I, I, I could tell he has some potential. I haven't seen him anything else, but I hate his character in this. I hate, hate, hate him in this movie. I can <laughs> tell he has potential. Ziggy in The Wire is one of the all-time great uh, prestige TV fuck-up characters. Yeah, exactly. So I think I can tell that he was a, he's like a much better actor than the other teenage characters in this movie. Mm-hmm. But among the adults, though, there's like that guy from Coach shows up. He doesn't have much to do, but I was just like, hey, it's the guy from Coach. We have Amanda Plummer from Pulp Fiction and lots of other movies as uh, the pregnant mom of uh, Claude. Uh, and I think I even recognize Claude's dad who's been in tons of TV shows. I'm not sure I could pick out one. Yeah, he's that meathead guy. Wade Williams. Yeah, Wade Williams. So it's interesting seeing them in there. But since I talked about kids, could you want to kind of describe this movie? This is a lot more plotless than kids, I think. Well, I mean, they're little short stories, loosely connected, basically, like cutting back and forth. I think there's like three main threads. All three of these kids that are at the center of these threads, they all know each other loosely. They all meet up in the end. Oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess there's, I guess there's four. Yeah. 
I don't know. I can only take these. I feel like I can only take these threads like one at a time. Yeah, sure. There's Peaches, a young woman who has a very religious dad who is very protective, but she's kind of kinky and she wants, she's like always wanting to have sex with her boyfriend. And she ultimately gets into like big trouble for him, like walking in on her and her boyfriend having like some kinky sex. And you you think that scene is going to like, be kind of silly like it's like a american pie moment for a second but then it just he just beats the kid up so hard and beats her up and he's like basically starts forcing her to like listen to him read the bible and then like goes through some kind of weird marriage ceremony yeah shades of sallow there yes to like protect her purity or whatever um there's sean who is like is it sean yeah all of there is to Sean is he has sex with his girlfriend's mom, basically. Yeah, Sean is just like, he looks like the kid from Gummo, pretty much. I think they just found a kid from Gummo. Um, <laughs> he is just basically having sex with his girlfriend's mom. And there's a lot of like explicit sex between them, including him like eating her out and stuff. And there's not a whole lot of substance to that thread. Hmm. It basically culminates in an awkward dinner table discussion where like he comes to dinner with them and he has to sit by his girlfriend and the mom that he's having sex with and her husband but nothing really comes of it it's like not very worthwhile and then there's another skater kid named claude who i like him the most i I like him a lot he's very much a non-actor you can tell he's just kind of struggling through a lot of the lines but i think He's really authentic. That story has the most meat to it, too. Yeah, it's definitely the centerpiece of the movie, I think. He's a skateboarder, and his dad is always pissed at him for some reason that we slowly start to figure out, like, is a very, like, kind of complicated, gross reason. And that whole thread, like, culminates in his dad, like, getting really drunk. And we see this, this sort of seeds of this as it goes along that his dad is like staring at him too much like as he gets drunker and drunker throughout the day and like and he's always calling him a fairy yes you know classic cl- closet case it seems like he wants to have sex with his wife but she's pregnant and he keeps on saying like i hope the baby looks like me this time because our son looks like you And he keeps on talking about how, like, Claude looks like his wife. And eventually it culminates in this drunken night where he comes into Claude's room and basically tries to rape him, ending in Claude leaving home. And then there's Tate, which you mentioned uh, from The Wire, uh, who I think is really annoying in this and is, like, some typical... We didn't mention that this is also written by Harmony Korine, I don't think. This seems like the most, like, typical kind of immature... Harmony Kareen thread here, where he is just like this horrible kid. There's nothing redeeming about him. And he's just always like has these weird, horrible hobbies of like printing out pictures of kids who were who were radiated in Chernobyl or something and like hates his dog and he hates his two grandparents that he lives with and they're playing Scrabble and he gets mad at him for allegedly cheating at Scrabble. There's like a horrible scene where he like He's, like, turned on by tennis players and, like, the noises they make. So he, like, I think it's, like, the most infamous scene in the movie where we see him, like, full-on naked, like, 
masturbating while like tying a, a tie to a doorknob and trying to choke himself while he masturbates. Which he does apparently to, for real, I think. Yeah, to completion in for the camera. And we get a nice big old unwanted close up of it for sure. Um and that all ends in a big old horrible scene where he it, it opens with him like with his blood with blood splattered on his face and he's like saying into his tape recorder what he did, which was like went into his grandparents' room and stabbed him to death. Naked, of course. And all of the threads eventually culminating in this will be a big part of like what we talk about with this, is the ending, which is apparently of Larry Clark's invention, not in the script. But all, um, I think it's Claude and Sean and Peaches, they've all escaped their horrible situations, even though they kind of end not great. And they are in a living room somewhere, and they are just having sex. Real, I think, unsimulated sex. And it's, like, supposed to be, at least, this moment of levity. This, like, final moment of, like, these kids getting to do what they actually want and... Basically, how the movie ends is this big old threesome that the characters have. Yeah, Larry was like, hey, guys, I have this crazy idea for the ending. What if everyone just had sex with each other and I filmed it all up close? Yeah. They're like, oh, you've you've cracked it, Larry. You've really changed. (laughs) I like to think of him as like a script polisher, and that was always his idea. Like, what if in the last scene, just all the hottest characters had a three-way? But yeah, so— And I was surprised, too, that when this opens, they kind of, the characters kind of introduce each other in voiceover, yet they never even encounter each other the entire movie. They never intersect until suddenly there's less than like 10 minutes left in the movie. And that kind of surprised me. I thought that there was, they they don't even seem to cross paths at all. Like they're totally separate stories. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, you did a good job of summarizing all four of them. Some of them are very slight and I mean, if we just start with Tate, who's, you know, just this psycho, basically, who's who just is always yelling at his grandparents and eventually kills them. I mean, I agree that 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 whole that whole thread with him is pretty much garbage. Like it contributes nothing, nothing again, since it's so segmented away from the rest of the movie, it doesn't pay off in anything or have any kind of meaning except once again for the shock value. And that's where most of the shock value is concentrated. I mean, there's lots of graphic stuff in this movie, but it's with him that, you know, Larry gets to throw in some vicious murder and you get the autoerotic asphyxiation, which, like you said, is probably a, the most infamous scene here. And maybe impressive that this guy went on to, you know, have a good career after, you know, starting off basically right. jerking off for the camera in a Larry Clark movie. Yeah, his whole thread is just so strange. It just doesn't go anywhere. It's like Larry at his worst. Which I I, I think another big part of this is that I, I know that the script was kind of changed to the point where the credit is like, it's like a, a script based on a script by Harmony Kareen and stories from Larry Clark, I think it is, or something in the credits um, at the end. They definitely butted heads and Harmony Kareen ultimately disowned this movie, I think. Oh, that's interesting. Because, yeah, I I believe I read that this started off like with Larry Clark's own draft of the screenplay and he just wasn't happy with it and asked Harmony to step in. So once again, he was probably kind of 
you know, hamstrung with what he was able to do because he had these specific stories that he wanted to tell. You know, he wants the dad who tries to rape his son. He wants to have this, you know, girl who is has this religious fanatic father. And that's really all there is to them. I agree that you could see with Tate's story seems to have the most of like Harmony's voice in there. And anytime that the characters have any kind of colorful moment or dialogue or something, I can't help but think that, you know, that was him throwing that in there. Yeah, that was one of the things that made it through, right? (laughs) Yeah. But that Larry had this overarching vision. And I want to say in a sense that the best parts of this are where you can hear Harmony's voice. But then again, that doesn't really hold true for the whole Tate thread. No. So- yeah, maybe there's just, there's really no, like, reconciling the two. No, it really is just kids without that momentum, without that earnest, I don't know, I don't, I'm not really transported, I, I'm transported to a place, but the the vibe goes only so far with this one. You know, there's one scene in particular, I think, that almost mirrors the scene in Kids, that is kind of, you know, juxtaposing the boys talking about sex and the girls talking about sex. There's kind of this scene here where Claude is hanging out in a similar type apartment, smoking weed with his friends and talking about his parents and things with life. And it's cutting back and forth between that and his, you know, asshole macho dad and pregnant mom drinking beer and watching Jerry Springer. And it has like a similar, they're structured similarly, but there's just no energy like whatsoever. It almost sounds like bad improv. Yes. Uh, like back and forth, whether it's the dad or the son, they're all just kind of aimless and it sounds like they don't even necessarily have like lines to go off of. And they're just thinking of things to talk about. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah. And again, they're just, they're watching Jerry Springer and drinking beer. Like there's a kind of stereotyping too of all of these bad parents and just signifiers, just, you know, drinking six packs and smoking cigarettes. Right. Once again, like he's picked his theme and he feels the need to basically ruin a lot of scenes that could be organic and like be about more to constantly, because he has to constantly be like, now, remember, the theme of the movie is your parents are bad and they're why you're bad or something. Yeah. And if I had to say anything positive about the movie, it's that at least the script is showing a little bit of interest in these kids' home lives, that they do occasionally think about something besides just getting their rocks off constantly. So kids has this really just narrowly focused fatalism to the whole thing. That I think in Ken Park, at least it doesn't seem like it's trying to necessarily make a giant sweeping statement. I mean, you could say that there is a focus on the parents here, but just the fact that these kids seem to have a little bit of like fuller lives than anybody in kids does. At least it tries. I don't know how successful it is. And I think it's it's probably in the movie's favor that it's constantly intercutting between these four different stories because I don't think any single one could sustain a movie on its own. Um, Like we said, we get the most out of Claude's story because you have the whole dynamic with his dad and the horrific way that that ends. But with Sean, all there really is to it is him hanging around with his girlfriend's mom and having conversations with her. And I didn't really get much out of Peaches either. Actually, I think that her character almost just barely exists. Like I got no sense of who she was even by the end of the movie. It's like, all right, that was really all that this story had. And 
you have that against, you know, the guy whose dad sneaks into bed with him. And it's just like, you know, this is a whole bunch of just generic shitty dads, uh, (laughs) you know? Right. It is really weird because it is like the culmination of all the stories are like is is happening at all at once. So they're intercutting between like the very intense like attempt rape attempted rape of this boy and then also like this intense like stabbing of like this kid killing his grandparents and stuff and like basically being sexually turned on by it. But in intercut between all that is these two just sort of clunky, like my dad's really religious. He's really mad at me. And then like this silly little dinner conversation that the kid who's fucking his girlfriend's mom has. <laughs> like, Yeah. And again, the we could have picked other Larry Clark movies to accompany kids in this conversation. Like we did talk about bully a little bit, which has some disturbing stuff in it. I think Ken Park is a good way to go because it has the violence, but like we've already made some allusions to all of the sex and nudity and the graphicness in here. But I I don't want to understate that either because, you know, once again, we get these kind of gratuitous shots of, Ugh, God, when she, when Peaches has her boyfriend tied to the bed and she spits into his mouth, I was like ready to throw up. That was disgusting. <laughs> but not just that, it's like any opportunity that there is. I, I definitely won't forget when the dad comes home drunk and go like goes into the bathroom. Yep. And we're like, oh, okay, so now what Larry's going to do is let us see somebody actually peeing because that's just a thing we don't normally see in movies. No. And we see the whole thing. And the camera, again, we see it in long shot, then it cuts to a close-up of his face, and then it starts going down. Like, he's he's always just moving the camera. Yep. No hands. No hands. He's going no hands. Amazing. The Larry Clark signature crotch pan. Exactly. That sounds like something you could buy on QVC. <laughs> the- <laughs> I'm glad you brought up that because I think that's like it's a scene for me that is just such a good example of what's going on here and what is sort of the problem when Larry Clark's at his worst, which is a lot of this movie is just him like his thesis being let's just do things that are real just for their own sake. And, And everybody's like, yeah, whoa, can't believe it. Can you believe that people like like we could look at somebody pissing. Can you believe we could look at teenagers having sex? Can you believe it? Can you believe teenagers do drugs and kill people? That's really him at his worst when he does when he isn't actually having real empathy yeah. and real interest for teenage life, right? The third act is interesting because I think that's his attempt at that, which is his version of all the characters going to heaven basically is, you know, what for a lot of teenagers, you know, a lot of people is like a nice sexual situation that like everybody's apparently like having like a really good time. They have like they just have like a threesome and that's like what the scene is. It's just like a nice moment of levity finally after all this struggle. And I think like part of it is he wants to give that to his teen characters and he wants teens to escape a lot of this bad stuff, even though he is like so obsessed with all this like horrible things happening to teenagers. I still feel queasy about it. It still is like, you know, a 50 year old man directing a porn scene. Well, no, I definitely want to talk about the ending because my experience, you know, with this movie, by the time all of the threads kind of end, even if we're not aware that they're ending, 
they all kind of just arbitrarily stop, except so the guy Tate is being hauled off in a police car after killing his grandparents. And Claude is leaving his house after what happened with his dad. The other two stories just kind of cut off. And up to this point, like I said before, they haven't ever crossed paths. Like there's no even if they hadn't introduced each other, there'd be no indication they even know each other. So all of a sudden, this last scene starts, and it's these three characters who so far have never crossed paths are now together, you know, having these conversations and, uh, you know, having sex. And I don't know, it caught me so off guard. I was almost like, did I miss something like how we got here? So yeah, following through that and then all the way to the ending or what's kind of the ending where they're playing the guessing game. And before he reveals who it is that he, you know, is trying to get them to guess, it just cuts to black to the title, Ken Park, which is the name of a character who we see kill himself in the first scene. It's a framing device that we sort of neglected to explain. It's kind of another needless, like, plot thing. You know, it's par for the course. It's cool, very teenager. Like, he's a kid who knocked up his girlfriend, so he, like, went to a skate park and shot himself on camera. Yeah, and that that has a very, you know, sensationalistic vibe to it, too, when we first see it. But the way that they don't bring him up then for the rest of the movie, and then they kind of circle back around in this kind of ambiguous way. I don't know. I really wasn't expecting that. That's something I'm not prepared for in his films to have there be this kind of rupture almost where you're not sure how it even fits into reality. And before that point, I was totally like, oh yeah, I'm unwatching this movie. There's literally nothing of value that I'm getting out of this at all. And- I don't know. It's something of the unexpectedness of it and the hopefulness of that last scene. It's not like it's great filmmaking or anything. And it is more, you know, explicit sex. You mean the threesome or you mean um, Ken shooting, like explaining why Ken shot himself? Uh, Both, actually. I'm not I'm not even so sure about like why they couldn't have just ended with the title card or why they had to circle back and show him with his with his girlfriend. See, I kind of hated that. Me finding out that why he shot himself, like, is not even, it doesn't even have anything to do with the rest of the movie. Yeah. It just has something to do with this one thread at the beginning. And it seems like, you know, screenwriter 101, where it's just like open with something and then close with the same thing. Um, but I, I, I'm kind of on board with you with the threesome, though. Yeah. And, and just the way that they bring him up in the guessing game. And before he says who it is, they just show the title card again. And I do wish it would have just ended there. But I don't know. There was something so just kind of just like esoteric enough about it. And just, the you know, the whole like upbeat tone that, yeah, it, it kind of rescued the movie as far as going from me literally getting nothing out of it and wishing that it would end to like, oh, this is kind of different. I'm not even sure ultimately how I would compare this to kids because, I don't know, it doesn't have the like gut punch that kids does, but I have a lot of problems with kids that this doesn't have. And this also doesn't end in such a predetermined, you know, obvious, even like moralistic place the way that kids does. I don't know, it's almost like it fought its way up to a draw for me in the end. The movie ends before the ending almost. The ending is almost like a dream or something like I like that about it, that it is like almost fantastical. It's like we don't even know where they are. We don't even know if this is even really happening, if this is like a fantasy that they're having. Yeah. And it's so unlike him just not to have not to even bother with any kind of explanation. And I feel like that goes a long way. So I do appreciate that. 
I just think it's like too little too late or something. I am uh, on the unwatch. This is on my unwatch list, I would say. I just really found it to be a really difficult slog for me personally. I found myself kind of skipping portions. I had to watch it over like two different days. And it's mainly just for like him. Like it's not these kids and it's not the vibe. And it's not like how it looks like that all I like. It is just him being sort of inept as a filmmaker, like as a storyteller is like the main problem with this. Yeah, yeah, I can't disagree. He has a very narrow range of talent and making entire movies is not really, you know, one of them. Maybe he could be like a director of photography or something. Because uh, I'm not even sure getting, you know, pairing him with the right writer I still don't need, I'm not even sure he couldn't mess that up. <laughs> right. It, it makes kids seem like lightning in a bottle, kind of like a one-time thing. It makes me worry about watching Bully again, but I feel like Bully may, must have had like, it had like a real screenwriter involved. And I think that's a big part of it. This one is very much Larry left to his own devices. And, and it's one of those that I think that completists of like both Harmony, Kareen and Larry Larry Clark probably look to as like, you know, it might be like a lost treasure. I don't think it is. Yeah. And we didn't even really talk much about how this is like, you can't find this movie unless, you know, you order like a DVD from another country or something because it never got picked up for distribution. So I don't even know how many people listening here, you know, have even seen the movie. And if you do, you kind of got to go out of your way to, you know, discover how you can get a hold of it. But either way, I think that even though the ending at least saved it from being a complete just zero like bomb for me, it doesn't redeem the movie. And I do think that it's not worth, you know, trudging up to do a, you know, Blu-ray release on Criterion or anything to save it from anonymity. I think it can go ahead and stay there. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, I'll go ahead and unwatch this too. Yeah, look at us. And with it's 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 very instructive to listen to watch it back to back with kids, kind of seeing him at his lowest after that first little spark that you know could have started a a long career, but instead you just see like how far the returns have diminished. And I don't even think that the returns were that great in the first place. Basically, go watch Bully instead of both of these movies. I would say or Teenage Caveman. Check out Teenage Caveman. <laughs> I've never seen that. I've never heard of that. That's crazy. I was hoping that, that you wouldn't both choose to unwatch this because unfortunately, Unwatchables has acquired the U.S. distribution rights to Ken Park. And as soon as I figure out how to print Blu-rays, <laughs> we'll have this available in our online store for purchase. Oh my uh, God, we can make like t-shirts. We can sell hats, Ken Park hats. Just don't send it to me. I don't want a copy. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark D'Otavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark D'Otavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. <laughs>